I don't think it would be out of hand for anyone to think that the intent was to burn that building down. Is there an overreaction? Potentially. From the Minnesota Reformer, this is Reformer Radio. I'm Max Nestrak. Each week, we'll go deep with someone at the center of an important story in Minnesota. Today, Governor Tim Walz reflects on the state's largest police response to protests since last year's unrest. What went wrong in Brooklyn Center? And what's his plan for the next time police kill someone? If this situation happens in Mankato or Marshall or wherever, it will be different. We'll listen to those local folks. Walz has promised more police reform, but he'll have to beg and barter if it's going to pass a divided legislature. And a year after Minnesota forced the nation's attention back on racial inequities, what's to be done about the disparities that have only grown wider during the COVID-19 pandemic? It's Friday, May 7th. Um, let me just get this mic right. I'm just going to... Yeah, what do you think? Make sure it's just pointing right at you. Great. Yeah, you're fine. You don't have to move around too much. Or All right. You, you can move around a little that bit. That close enough? Yeah, that's good. Great. Yeah. So um, podcast here, huh? Yeah, we're doing a podcast. Nice. <laughs> um, we've all been, you've been vaccinated. We've all been vaccinated. You guys all done? Yeah. You're past your time? Well, we can do, yeah. we, we can, can meet. Without, yes, yeah. yes, if we're all good. So we're on. Did you the, do J&J? Or we did you, the J&J too. Sweet, wasn't it? One and done. Media you, elite. Media elite, <laughs> yeah. Did you get sick at all? I got a little sick uh, just for about 12 hours afterward. My wife is tough as nails. Like she has children come back home and work. She never gets sick. It beat the shit out of her. Mm. And I never got anything. I didn't even, you know, I like cry about a tetanus shot and this thing was like <laughs> nothing. But. Nothing. So we're doing great. Well, you guys go ahead. Whatever you have, okay. follow your lead. And... All right. Well, first, Governor, isn't the inaugural Reformer Radio episode the place to announce your reelection campaign? <laughs> It probably should be. I mean, it hits all those audiences across there, but um, I'm uh, I'm not quite prepared to do that. And I, I just want to get us to a better spot on COVID, kind of a wrap spot or at least a long-term maintenance spot on COVID than I think, then it makes sense. And I think we get out of a legislative session, we get that wrapped up, then we're in a better spot to make a decision. So, Fair enough. <laughs> so, there's been a lot of talk about racial equity across the country because of events that happened here in Minnesota. Uh, and yet the pandemic has disproportionately hit people of color in terms of health, wealth, and education. Are we going to come out of this year of so-called racial reckoning with greater inequity than when we went in? If we don't do things right, we will. Um, I think as it stands right now, I think that would probably be an honest statement across the country. The good news is, is it's um, while Minnesota has the gap that people know about the larger gap, we all start at a higher place. And so what that means is, is that children uh, came out better in Minnesota than any place else in the country. And that would mean black children still came out better, even though that gap is there. But with that being said, yes, the potential is certainly there. What COVID did was expose all those inequities, access to healthcare, access to housing. We told people to go home, stay in their house. Well, you don't have a house, you don't have a job, you lose your you know, home. That was one of the reasons, one of the very first executive orders we made was around the moratorium, knowing that it was both a community health decision, but also a, a stability for those families. With that being said, I remain very optimistic. I think Minnesota being the epicenter of this, um, 
I wished it wouldn't have happened here, but wishing things away does not fix the problem. The systemic issues um, around the need for police reforms, but the systemic issues around racism were here. I think it's more shocking in a progressive state, and, and I think it shocked a lot of Minnesotans to realize that their neighbors worry when their children drive to soccer practice. And, and around racial equity, um, if the flashpoint was the murder of George Floyd, that simply opened up what I think was coming. I think you've probably heard it as reporters, something you might not have heard even 10 years ago, people acknowledging that we had a pretty big gap. You heard the education gap first, then you heard it in home ownership gap, and then you heard it all down the line. And I think that acknowledgement was kind of for a while, Minnesotans kind of thought, well, we did our work, we acknowledge that we have this problem. I think what COVID did um, was say, well, now what are you gonna do about it? What are we going to do about it? So what, what are you going to do about it? What, what in the budget do you think will address uh, racial inequities we have in Minnesota? Yeah. Well, I would say, first of all, we need to, the immediate threat is, is some of the just common sense moves around police reforms. And I think the police would, would agree on this. No one should lose their life for a traffic stop. And these, the work and the hassles around pretextual stops for, you know, you don't want people doing things dangerously, but, you know, a, a Christmas tree air freshener or whatever it may be, or even a warrant, if these are misdemeanor warrants. I think you take away some of that threat by by acknowledging that there's things we can do together, and then we get at the heart of this. If, 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 if we're dealing with these societal and systemic issues and racial inequities, if the police have to deal with all of that, we've lost this race. We know that Black mothers die in childbirth at a much higher rate than white mothers. So prenatally, it starts before that. Here's why I'm so optimistic about this. The American Rescue Plan that came to deal with COVID was geared just for that. Yes, it was an economic package to make sure that small businesses, which we've done in Minnesota, which the federal government has done, albeit too slowly, but those Rescue Act dollars that are out there are meant to do things like provide summer school opportunities for communities hardest hit. They're meant to provide uh, housing stability for communities hardest hit. They're meant to go to small businesses who are the hardest hit. That money is transformational. And so I'm making the case that to close that gap, to make up for some of those inequities and to start addressing how we get to a point where we are in Minnesota, where we have this large gap in home ownership, we have this large gap in, in generational wealth, and we have George Floyd and Dante Wright being killed um, simply because of the color of their skin in many cases, we can start to address that in a way that wasn't possible before. So I'm, I remain very optimistic around uh, the American Rescue Plan dollars. I want to talk about your executive powers. So when you were in Congress in 2008, you were a critic of the Bush administration's executive power. Um, what would Tim Walls 2021 say to Tim Walls 2008 about too much power being in the hands of the executive branch? I think you can always be worried about that. Now, I would ask, you know, specifically the executive orders I was concerned with in the Bush administration. It was about surveillance um, with Patriot Act, the Patriot Act. Yeah. And I would say I used my executive powers to um, put a moratorium on a public health crisis. Now, with that being said, just in all fairness, um, I do think there's a real concern about the balance of power in a democracy. And I think emergencies can be used inappropriately to extend those powers. I, I think that is fair. Now, I would say this, the way of the checks and balances on that are the court systems to make sure that these things, and, and I will say, knock on wood, um, we have a perfect record of not extending beyond that. Um, but I would also say that trying to find a way to 
collectively work together. And I think the one that's really hard in this space is I'm trying to strike compromise around a public health crisis that, for example, the Mayo Clinic says masks reduce the spread of COVID and should be worn inside. But Republican senators say we don't want to do it. I think it's mitigations from masks to capacities in bars that most bothers them. I don't think that they're opposed to the emergency powers are what triggers FEMA being at the state fair site vaccinating people. The emergency powers are what triggers the federal government giving us $41 million a month in supplemental um, nutrition aid. I think they want those things to stay in, but I think they wanted to limit the business requirements. So I would be, I would be interested if, it, if this would be a discussion about emergency powers if there was agreement around COVID in general. You said you'll burn your political capital on police reform. What are the most crucial policy items needed? I think showing movement in general that we think would have a short-term fix. I, I would argue around the pretextual stops, you know, just figuring out a way that we don't have to do those because whether it's Philando Castillo or whether it's, it's uh, Dante Wright, these are situations with black men who are put in situations that by all accounts are relatively minor and could be handled in a different way that escalate into a life being taken. And I think the police would agree if there's a way that we can do that. I've seen this, um, you know, if, if, if you don't pay the toll on any of these freeways in, in Illinois, anybody who's been over there, they find a way to send that to you no matter where you're at with what they took the picture of your car and the license plate, they do whatever. There's things that I think we need to think about. I think mental health um, responses that not everything requires a armed police response and how we do it. This isn't about defunding police. This is about rethinking public safety together. And I think some of those things that are in these bills make sense. And, and then I, again, I don't think you can ever go wrong with with oversight, public oversight. We made some of these changes over at the post board, um, and I'll be the first to say things about, it shouldn't be a hard lift, but if you're associated with white supremacist groups, you can't be a police officer. But we also, I think, need to hold ourselves accountable and have a uniform policy across the state that says, how are we gonna respond to legitimate First Amendment assembly? And there's differences. How do we make sure that those confrontations, whether it be a non-lethal use of force by the police or a brick going over the fence, how do we collectively together work out what the rules are around First Amendment assemblies? And, and those are things that I think that they can codify in the legislative session that I think police are, are going to say, sure, we're fine with that. What are you willing to give up in order to pass these reforms? Well, I'm not negotiating till we get to the table. Um, what I'm not willing to give up is I'm not willing to give up uh, those investments in the health of Minnesotans um, and the recovery from COVID. I'm certainly willing to to talk about how how we do that. What do we look at? What about revenues or the long run? Um, but these reforms need to happen. When I was at Brooklyn Center during the protests, most of the conflict was concentrated in a very small area right up against the fence. Uh, you had police and protesters lined up almost like they were going to war with another. Uh, you, they'd be exchanging, you'd see a brick or a water bottle get thrown, and then that would be uh, met with rubber bullets or uh, tear gas or other uh, munitions. But then just, you know, several hundred feet away, people are just hanging out. A block yes. away, the Dollar General is getting looted. There's got to be a better strategy than that. And for what everybody, is it? for everybody. And, and when I say that for everybody, the responsibility, we couldn't have a situation that we saw in May and June of last year where we lost um, hundreds of businesses, many of them, you know, 
owned by communities of color, but we also can't have a situation where people are legitimately bringing up things that need to change, and I agree with them on that need to change, and they have every right to be able to express that. And, and I think that fence being um, a euphemism for where we're at, that it seemed in, impenetrable on each side, we need to know who's on each side of the fence. And my job is to represent folks on both sides of that fence to figure it out. But I can tell you that I think, and again, I think if it's an example of what we can do, the second fence was put up to get them away from that confrontational thing, to move folks back. You weren't gonna lose the building from this. And that second fence then allowed folks to be able to protest without thinking that was gonna happen. But something else that, that was incredibly helpful, community, from community activists, stood there and said, don't throw a brick, but by all means yell and say we need change, and Dante Wright needs justice. And I think when you started to see police put up the second barrier, de-escalate from that, you saw those that were out there legitimately protesting and using their First Amendment rights advocate don't throw bricks at them and step back. You saw that situation de-escalate. You saw a sense of now maybe we can talk about what needs to happen and needs to change. And I'm looking for a uniform policy to make that happen. What about, you know, setting officers outside the station shoulder to shoulder just waiting to get a water bottle thrown at them. Yeah. Uh, on Sunday, there were uh, demonstrators outside the Brooklyn Center Police Station. Hardly a police officer outside the station ended peacefully. Yeah. Was that a mistake to put well, so not... many officers out lined up right in front of the police station? Well, I, I again, if the question was why weren't they lined up last May at the third precinct to stop that? So it's that situation. The one thing is for me is is in both these situations we didn't lose any life. We had minor injuries. Um, can we get better all the way around? Absolutely. And and I think that was the reason at the post board to ask. Let's start looking at a model policy. Let's start understanding that. I again the responsibility is, is when people are out there is not to second guess of people who are in authority. But when you see this, that authority is an interesting thing. Like the folks who I have direct responsibility over would be the state patrol, the National Guard, but then you have county sheriffs, you've got city police. How do they collectively have a uniform policy across the state, and I would like to see maybe across the country? Um, certainly I'm not naive. Some folks are there to cause uh, mischief or to cause harm or to destroy property, but the vast majority are out there because Dante Wright was shot. That's why they were there. So when, when law enforcement decided to use tear gas, some of which went into people's homes, homes where children were, did they get your consent? Um, I, they have the consent by, by me being the person as the governor. I don't control the local law enforcement. I've never been, you know, that's not where I'm at. I think at this But this was an operation safety net response, right? And you were- Not in the first days um, okay. that we were there to support afterwards. Um, I think this issue around- the use of these munitions. That goes back to why I'm asking the post board, when are the situations correct? What would happen if you if you use them or don't use them? And again, I would ask all of us to, to think about this, and it's why in an urban planning situation, you don't see a lot of police departments in, you know, uh, neighborhoods, in residential neighborhoods, of how do we get to that point where the situation brought this protest to that spot, um, I don't think it would be out of hand for anyone to think that the intent was to burn that building down because that was the what happened in May, um, and then try and how to respond. Now, one of the things with this model policy is to think about, and we did, I think, whether it was food support or um, housing, 
is what kind of support can we provide for people who were in this case totally just bystanders to the situation. And that's the response that I brought to it in those first days. I said we need to make sure there's housing vouchers for these folks. We need to make sure that we're getting people out. We need to make sure there's counselors down there because there's children listening to this um, that really should be in there going to bed and studying. And I think for all of us involved, we've got to reach somewhat of a little bit of a detente on that. You said Minnesota law enforcement had failed in its treatment of journalists that week yeah. of the Brooklyn Center protest. You didn't say that about its treatment of protesters. And so I'm wondering if, if you think Operation Safety Net succeeded in how it responded to demonstrators. Well, what you saw was starting the Monday that the jury went into, uh, was sequestered. That was all along how Operation Safety Net was going to work. They would come in once the jury went to that to phase three. They would stay there till after the verdict was read and they would de-escalate. That's what you saw in Minneapolis. The situation with Dante Wright um, was a separate issue but was coinciding with those folks being ready. That was nine months of planning, so the difference was. What I would say is Operation Safety Net in Minneapolis that um, we did not have buildings burned, we did not have the looting, um, we had peaceful assembly, we had a verdict, people went home, and we de-escalated. So I think in that regards, it did. It did work the way it is. Now again, what I kept saying is, we can't live like this. We can't live like putting up barriers every time that we have a situation. We can't live like calling the National Guard every time we have a trial. We've got to find a new way of doing that. Right, so, so Operation Safety Net went smoothly in Minneapolis for the Chauvin verdict. Outside the Brooklyn Center Police Station, Operation Safety Net was in effect what were, what were the mistakes made in relation to how it responded we'll to demonstrators? We'll see when that comes out. We'll see. There's an after action will be done on it, and we'll okay. find out. We, we, uh, we learned from May and June um, again, and we would be having this conversation if the Brooklyn Center Police Department burned down, that we didn't have enough folks out there. Why? But we learned from that. Now, the question is, did you learn enough, or did, was there an overreaction? Potentially. And when that after action report comes in, then we will adjust accordingly. The next time a police officer in Minnesota kills someone, do you bring back Operation Safety Net? Do you call in the National Guard right away? What, what's your plan? No, I think each of these situations um, warrant their own response. I, I would tell you that the, the joint coordination is really hard, and if they haven't done it. And, and last May and June, expectations of what the cities say, and, and again, I would ask people, they, they watch whether it's Portland or somewhere else, it's very rare where the state steps in. Um, one of the things that we did here was is to try and provide the support to the communities. It's their decisions. They're making some of these decisions early on, and they have to. But the state has the resources to be able to support. And that, as I said, might be food aid. It might be housing aid from Minnesota Housing, those types of things. But they have to be in conjunction with what the mood of the local community is. One of the things that we've been pressing and is starting to happen is just educating communities of what the capabilities of the state are. How do we do this? Now, the, the situation around George Floyd was unique. It was a trial unseen in terms of um, press interest, global interest. We knew when it was going to be, and we knew the tensions and the emotions that were around it. Uh, so we planned accordingly to that. That If this situation happens in Mankato or Marshall or wherever, it will be different. We'll listen to those local folks. How do you want to end? Hopeful. You want to end hopeful. How do you want to end? In. A challenging year, a hard year, uh, things that I have to tell you. I, uh, running for governor, that you take the hand that's dealt to you, but the idea of a global pandemic, and, and I'm trying to tell people this, is that COVID is 
much more contagious and much deadlier than polio. This in a historical context is unprecedented. Layer onto that a reckoning around race and police. I think what I find most hopeful about this is um, how Minnesotans have responded on both fronts with a willingness to change. They've responded around COVID incredibly well. People are alive because of the way Minnesotans reacted. And I think George Floyd, the rest of the country's looking, and this is an interesting, Reverend Jackson says, there's a lot more lightness than darkness in Minnesota. This is a state that helps people and cares about people. He said, you've got issues to work on, but the rest of the country believes this gives us a golden opportunity to use Minnesota as the proving ground that we can make these changes. Can you actually close a wealth gap? Can you actually do police reforms that have police and activists together? So I have to say, um, after this year, I, I've learned to, I used to say this about Congress, I say it now, don't ever say it can't get worse because you don't know, you don't know. I mean, my God, I just, again, I have to tell you, I mean, my heart sinks and breaks when you have a gun at Plymouth. And I mean, I, I can't, I feel like I, we dodged a lightning bolt. And then this week I, I called a family in Marshall who lost their first grader to COVID and talked to that family. Um, that's the humanity that's happening right now. But I think the, the overarching thing, um, if any state can tackle this, it's probably us. And, and I feel like that it's not by chance. I talked about one Minnesota. That may seem a long ways away right now, but I think it's a shared goal. Thank you so much. Great, thanks. Thank you, Governor. This show was produced by me, Max Nesterak, and edited by Patrick Kulikin. Special thanks to Johnny Vince Evans, who composed our theme music. This show is new, so give us positive reviews on the podcast apps so others can find us. If you have a negative review, send it to Patrick, Patrick at Minnesota Reformer, all spelled out, dot com. You can drop me a line at max at minnesotareformer.com. We'll be back next Friday with a new show, so make sure you're subscribed. Have a great weekend.